Well, welcome back. Welcome back to the When You Love a Prodigal podcast. I hope you had an incredible uh, Christmas time just rejoicing in our Savior, time with family, hopefully a good time with your prodigal and not a negative time. And, um, and that even as you look at a new year, there's, there's hope for you. And uh, if you love a prodigal, and most people listening do, you will discover help and hope for this wilderness journey that you're on right here on this podcast, and especially today. You'll also find some help and hope for your own life journey. This isn't just about that prodigal. It's about you and how you keep going. And today, I am confident that you are going to be so blessed and encouraged, even through tears, perhaps, for yourself and your family and your prodigal. Um, And especially if your prodigal uh, struggles with addiction of any kind. And I think that our guest is going to be just what you need right now. I'm chatting with Pam Lanhart, who says, I'm just a mom who's become a warrior. Growing up with addictions in her family, she was determined to protect, protect her children from that devastation. But it came anyway. Pam's long journey and battle for her son's freedom has benefited many families through her book, Praying Our Loved One Home, and through her ministry, Thrive Family Recovery Resources. And later, when you want to look that up and maybe get some help from Pam, uh, that information on her ministry and her book will be listed in the show notes of the podcast. As you listen, I encourage you to listen well to determine at least one truth that Pam shares will help you in your prodigal wilderness. Be sure to write it down so you can look for ways to begin to live it out. So welcome, Pam Lanhart. I am so grateful for this time with you. Tell us a little about yourself, where you live, your family, what you love to do together, because I know you don't like to do things by yourself. (laughs) Well, no, you're right, Judy. I'm an extrovert, most definitely. Um, my, I'm married to my wonderful husband, Paul, and we will have our 41st wedding anniversary this summer, which, you know, puts me at about 12. I understand that. (laughs) (laughs) But we were young. Um, and by the grace of God, we've weathered, um, pretty much every storm that a couple could. In fact, now I think, with Jake's passing, it has been every storm. And um, yet, through the grace of God and the determination of really loving um, each other well, we have made it through every single possible hardship and trial. Um, I have four four children. Our oldest, Diana, is 37 now, I think. And she actually has 10 children. 
And so in this day and age where, you know, it's a average of two children per family, she has a really unusually large, large family. And we get to see just the fulfillment of the generational legacy of our faith go into her family, which has been just an honor yes. um, to watch. And her children just are amazing. They range from almost 16 down to uh, little one-year-old twins. And so they're very busy yes. uh, <laughs> raising their children. I, I was just yes. visiting my daughter, my oldest daughter, who lives in Montana, and she has five children. And uh, <laughs> they are half of my grandchildren. And, um, yeah, it's a very busy life. Uh, so, yes. But what joy to be part of yeah, it. And what honor it is as uh, grandparents to watch her um, raise little arrows for Christ and, you know, just um, really, you know, thinking about the verse in Proverbs, training up your children in the ways of the Lord. And and they definitely have that foundation. And so Diana's just the, the sweetest woman, and she's a writer also and a professional photographer. So she has this real creative bent in her. And my son, Andy, is 25, soon to be 26, is married, lives only two miles from us. Um, and then, of course, Jake was our prodigal who just passed away. And he's with Jesus. I, I believe that with all my heart. And then we have Nikki, who is 21. And the our family is an active family. For years, I was a runner. Um I, we enjoy mountain bike, biking together. And one of the things that happened, um, through Jake's addiction was that we got sort of addicted to climbing mountains. So, um, Paul, when Jake was really struggling when he was a teenager, he would just scoop him up and take him out to Colorado. And, and even just in April, Jake shared that he felt most at peace and closest to God when he was in the mountains. So my husband has a ministry where we take men and women in recovery or just broken, you know, by the trials of life out to the wilderness. So we do backpack camping trips where we, yeah, we take men and women out to Colorado and we get them off grid for a week and they climb mountains and um, it's just a great ministry. So we've all summited um, our plan with Jake is to bring him up this summer um, to his favorite mountaintop. And um, and which one is that? Well, it's Mount of the Holy Cross okay. in Colorado. He loved the water and it has a beautiful stream. And um, so, yeah, we'll all summit that this summer at some point. And, and that's where he'll rest. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, why don't we get into then a little of your journey, starting back with how the addictions started with Jake um, and the journey that you've been on and the positive times and then the fallbacks and, and, and tell us a little about that. Well, yeah, definitely our life, you know, with him was never dull. And in fact, we, you know, both Paul and I are like, wow, things are kind of a little boring now. Um, and, and we've had to adjust to that because he was a kid of extremes from the minute he came out of the womb. And I, I'm sure some of your listeners are, can relate to this. They're probably shaking their head. 
when we were around Jake, we never doubted we were alive. (laughs) (laughs) Because he was either, uh, there's a nursery rhyme that says, about the little girl with a curl in her forehead. And when she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. And that was sort of our Jake. You know, he was, came out of the womb, oppositional, um, active to the point where we would have to strap the stroller straps through his belt loops so he wouldn't get out of the stroller. (laughs) Um, If you couldn't find him, all you had to do was look up. And he was in the top of a yes. tree or on top of a play set or climbing up the top of our basketball hoop. Um, he didn't ever stop. And he was always, he loved the outdoors. He was super active. Um, but recently what he said to us was he always, he never felt, he always felt like he had this, you know, missing part of him. Um, sort of a hole in his spirit. And even though he was baptized when he was 11 and um, he, you know, really had this relationship with the Lord, he just always felt like not good enough. And, you know, maybe that was partially our fault. I don't know. I mean, I definitely feel like we tried our hardest and um, we made lots of mistakes raising our kids. And Don't we all? Like we all do. And um, so we don't, you know, blame ourselves, but we also, when we know better, we do better. And so the good news about our story is that through the process of Jake's addiction, we learned to do things differently. Um, so his, he started using when he was 12. He went to a new school and he wanted to fit in and he, you know, easily fit in with the kids in the bathroom that were smoking pot. And so his addiction started with marijuana. He went to his first treatment when he was just 15. And throughout his life, he passed away when he was 24. I think he went through about 13 or 14 residential treatments. And, you know, one of the things that my son mentioned, Andy mentioned at Jake's service was how determined Jake was. You know, he... um once he decided that he wanted to live a different life, he just kept trying. But what happened with his addiction is when he was uh, 17 and he was he was in a drug court program. So we had two good years of uh, when he was like 16 and 17 of him um, being mostly supervised by someone else. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and, and engaged in recovery and doing really well. And when he was a senior in high school, he was playing rugby and he broke his femur. And um, I remember him laying on the field that day and them giving him fentanyl because he had to, you know, they had to. Like a femur break is literally the most painful thing that can ever happen to somebody. They say it's similar to falling off a seven-story building. Like the pain is... You're in shock. You can't move. And I remember at, at that moment going, really, God? Really? Like, is this the way this is going to end? And, um, you know, it, it almost in that moment felt like God was starting to prepare me for the fact that Jake was going to live a short life. Um, But he did, when he was 19, start 
activating his recovery and he really did want to get well. So through, you know, opiates and methamphetamines, he did finally ask for help. And so he, we sent him out to treatment in Arizona and through the course of the time he was 19 till the time he was 24, you know, our family did a lot of healing work. We did a lot of changing. Um, we did a lot of treatment work, which really helped us all heal, um, heal. But through that process, back when he was about 17 or 18, you know, we were told to go to a, go to a meeting. That was the only help that was available was to go to a meeting. And that meeting that we went to just did not align with our values because it told us, and he's like 16, 17, he, you know, it told us to do this, some sort of this tough love yeah. thing, like detach, disconnect, um, kick him out, uh, you know, and we couldn't because he was a minor, yes. <laughs> but the me- the messaging of this particular meeting did not seem to align with our values. I, I would agree with that. It that's not our, but my value is either. So, yeah, and and so you know, we sort of had to wrestle with like what were our values and how did we want to be in this and how did we want to show up. And uh, about that time, we met with a pastor, and he said to us. Uh, this profound thing, and I still have it written on a piece of paper in my bedroom, and I look at it every day. And he said, are you going to be right for the sake of justice, or are you going to love for the sake of relationship? Because love never fails, and justice was already paid for on the on the cross. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, pretty profound. And what we realized is that in through this process, it had become more about winning or getting him sober or being right than it had been about just loving right. And now I call that loving well. Um, and so I asked myself during that time, if my son did get sober, would he want to have a relationship with me? If my son got sober, would he want to have a relationship with the God that I believed in? And if the worst thing happened and he didn't make it, would I have regrets? Would I have lived my life in a way that honored my son and his intrinsic value? And that was the catalyst for the changes we made in regards to loving Jake and to loving, you know, our prodigal, which was, um, you know, just so many people use the story of the prodigal to almost justify like detachment and disconnection. And I saw the story of the prodigal father in a way that was the opposite, which was the father received his son with open arms, that he loved him well and that he forgave him immediately. And um, so we started a ministry. I started a ministry back in um, 2016. And I, my whole purpose was to help families to learn the balance um, between, you know, 
allowing their loved one to make their own decisions, not controlling their life, not manipulating outcomes, setting boundaries so that we could walk through this journey with um, unconditional positive regard for our loved one. Beautiful. And so, you know, like I said, I, I call that loving well. And and part of that was, and you know, how do we, where do we get our value from? Right. Right. You know, is our value in Christ or is our value in outcomes? And that is such a, that is profound. It's, we should know that, but um, we're so desperate for the outcome to be the way we want it to be, that it's easy to to just focus on that, and um, and that doesn't work all the time, <laughs> a lot of times, and certainly the rejection, the pushing away. Um, when people say tough love to me, I say tough is a pretty negative word. It is a rejecting word. I said you need the boundaries and the uh, consequences that are clearly defined, but you need them in a, a loving, accepting, we want relationship with you. And I tell people, I said, your first priority is to keep that relationship because if you lose it, you lose the ability to help them and to influence them. And that's those are exactly my words, right? They always say the opposite of addiction is connection. And the, the research and the data supports that family is the deepest connections that are imaginable. In fact, I do genogram work with families and um, Pete Cazaro has a great, a couple of great YouTube videos on the genograms and the power of um, family patterns and gen generational family, um, generational family issues. So like we gain great traits from our parents and sometimes we gain some not so great traits from our parents. So when we look at addiction, oftentimes we can look historically back three and four and five generations and recognize that, you know, there's been addiction in the family. And so, you know, as I was walking through this, part of, because of course we had that same family history, you know, I really wanted to try to do my own work so that I could heal in an effort to start to break some of those generational family patterns that that we had and um and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of focus on our own stuff right, right. you know that we bring into our family and we you know some of it is trauma like what i realized is um my dad for example he um he didn't know how to be a dad because his dad died when he was 18 months old and his mom was very controlling and um and he had a double abandonment because his stepdad left for the grocery store one day when he was about 10 and never came back so my dad brought all of this trauma into my family and the way that he managed his trauma was to drink and my mom filled that pattern that his mom had which was you know to be sort of that uh, caretaker and, you know, ma managing the family and, um, 
And so while I did not suffer from substance use, I definitely brought patterns of control and overreaction. And, um, you know, sometimes like really just manipulating my environment. And what I realized now is that that was what I needed to feel safe. And um, so I had to kind of work through some of that. So my son, when he started using, sort of experienced that generational pattern of me wanting to feel safe and how that manifested in our family was by me controlling, manipulating, sometimes yelling, you know, uh, and I had to learn how to break those patterns. In, and what helped you learn to do that? Well, you know, of course, first of all, it's our relationship with Jesus, right? Judy, I, um, I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. And I started asking for more from the Holy Spirit. Like, but the Bible says, like, you don't have it because you don't ask. And so, you know, I just would wake up every morning, read my Bible and say, Lord, fill me with what I lack because I can't do this on my own. And um, I would ask for more love. I would ask for an anointing of love. And then, you know, I read a couple books. And one book that really helped me was a book called The Anatomy of Peace. And it's a book I have all of my families read. It's not a Christian book, but it's a book about um, why sometimes we dehumanize people and um, what is behind the de dehumanization of others. And sometimes it's rooted in our own insecurities and our need to be seen and our need to be valued. And so it gave me some great insights into my own lacking. And of course, I believe in therapy. I'm like, I have Jesus and I have a therapist. And so I did a lot of trauma work um, to help me work through my own stuff. I also did some healing prayer work. Good. That's um, good. Yeah. Yeah. So I went and did um, some of some intercessory healing prayer. So I, I sort of attacked it on all, you know, fronts, right? So some of it was reading my Bible. Um, I think the word of God is healing. The word of God is powerful. Some of it was prayer, intercessory prayer, anointing, um, having people pray over me. Some of it was secular therapeutic interventions. And I really believe in all of it. And through this, then you were able to love your son well and bring about the security of his being sure that he's loved. And some of it was um, learning a new way of communicating, Judy. I um, did not grow up in a very safe, affirming, loving environment. And one of the things I had to learn was how to listen well, how to validate my person, you know, when they would say, you know, when Jake would say, well, you know, this isn't fair. Um, and my natural instinct would be to say, well, of course it's fair. You just, you just don't like you know, it. <laughs> yeah. Or you just broke the rules. So of course it's fair. And instead I learned to just say, wow, I, you're, it, it sounds like it, it feels really unfair to you. Can you tell me more about that? Can you talk about that? Like, what what do you think would be a way to get through this? How can you resolve this conflict? You know, and so instead of 
jumping in to give advice or solve a problem. I, which is my, you know, unfortunately, God gifted me to be a problem solver. And I'm, you know, I'm very skilled at that. And I'm sure it's because I grew up with, you know, alcoholism in my family and I had to figure things out. But when we do that as a parent, it, it, it really disables our children from learning how to stretch their own problem solving muscles. That's, and so that's good that, that, yeah, we get, we try to step in so much and solve their problems that they don't have, aren't forced to love, to try that themselves, to, to make the effort. Um, some aren't willing, but uh, we can sure make a difference in encouraging them toward their own help, their own recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a, our, we're wired to fix, you know, because we're moms. Um, and uh, Brene Brown had a podcast, a little short clip the other day that I saw that was so good. And what she said is that, um, you know, when we jump in to fix, we're not, usually we're not trying to fix the problem as much as we're trying to fix the pain. And we don't want our children to feel pain. And yet it's through pain that we learn how to solve our own problems. And it's through pain that we learn how to change. And so we we look at pain in our society as a bad thing, as a negative thing. And yet I know that it's been only through uh, my pain and maybe some natural consequences of my own negative choices and decisions that I have actually been motivated to change. And so when we want to create the motivation to make changes in our loved one, we have to allow them to feel some of that pain. Now, I always caveat with this idea that in this day and age where we live in a society that has a poisoned drug supply and you can smoke marijuana and it can be laced with fentanyl and you can use cocaine and die from it, we do have to sort of think about reducing harm or, you know, making sure that our person is not in imminent, you know, at an imminent risk for death, right? And so I'm also sort of in that camp as a Christian that I believe people should carry naloxone. And I believe that, you know, if a person has opiate use disorder, maybe they need to be on medications for that. Um, so I'm, I, I try to balance everything with the, the culture that we live in right now, which is, you know, overdose deaths are, have doubled in the last year. Yes, they have. Um, suicide has almost doubled in the last year. Our, our children are suffering. And I think that my philosophy is as family members, I say, first, do no harm. We don't want to add to the suffering because they're probably already miserable. That's really, again, a profound thought. Don't add to their harm. Um, Things are hard and we can do our part to help them know how to move forward, perhaps. And again, they won't always go that way, uh, but they will, if we can keep them in a 
feeling safe within our relationship, then they're much more likely to be able to break free from the things that are controlling them. Can you speak just briefly about the role of, of trauma um, and loss in leading uh, to possible addiction? You know, there's an a expert called, uh, his name is Gabor Matei, and, you know, we see a lot of work, and he, his philosophy is that, and, you know, that every person begins to use because they have some pain in their life. And I believe that's true. Now, when we talk about trauma, sometimes uh, it will rub parents the wrong way because they will think, well, my person didn't have any trauma right? Like they weren't raped, they weren't abused, they had a great home. And I want to validate you um, as a parent, you, I'm sure you did provide a safe environment. But trauma can look really different for different people. So trauma could be I was bullied on the school playground. <laughs> trauma could be um, the boy sitting next to me touched me inappropriately. Trauma can be I had ADHD and they put me in a special class in school, and I felt like I didn't fit in. Trauma could just be my brain doesn't work like everybody else's, and because of that, I'm labeled as, um, you know, unreachable, unteachable, learning differences. So when we, um, what I like to say, and I ask parents to consider, is that um, we know from an evidentiary standpoint that um, behaviors make sense. So when a person starts to use, it's the solution to the problem. So the problem, whether it's trauma or pain, or it could be physical pain, but but substances are always the solution. So short term, what happens is I feel like I don't fit in, and that's my trauma. And when I use, all of a sudden... I feel like I'm the life of the party, right? And so, you know, it's hard. I don't want to label, I don't want to talk about trauma in a way that sort of puts it on parents. And No, and I agree. Sense. Yeah, every, every person, and in this day and age, you know, because of COVID, um, you know, we are seeing some trauma just in losses. You know, people are losing their family members or, you know, I've heard my, I started my addiction when my grandma died because I was very close to my grandmother. Or maybe it's I was in college and everything shut down and I lost my community and I was isolated and it was just easy for me to smoke pot and hear my anxiety, right? So there's a broader definition to trauma um, maybe it, you know, for some families, it's more of a trauma of neglect. Maybe that yeah. person didn't yeah. feel like they fit in, or maybe they, there, you know, there was a, an environment where they felt um, invalidated, or you know. And again, I say these things not to blame. I I acknowledge that we probably created some trauma for Jake because we didn't respond in a loving way 
when he first started, started using. using. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and so we worked very hard to sort of rectify that down the road. So we're going to do another interview in a while so because there's more I want you to be able to share. But I'd like for you to take a minute now um, or a few minutes and and bring us to the point where Jake was doing well and you had hope for his future and then you lost him. And tell us as much as you can comfortably do about that. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, I call it our Lazarus time. And the reason I use that term is because, um, you know, Lazarus died. And um, four days he was dead before they got word to Jesus and Jesus got back to Lazarus and healed him. And so they don't really talk about this in the Bible, but from the time Lazarus was healed, he, he did die. Ultimately, he died for eternity, right? But the time between the time he was healed and the time he died, you know, I call Lazarus time, right? This was this gift that his family got um, where he had been healed and the family was able to spend time with him until he left for eternity. And we got this Lazarus time with Jake. So, you know, it, it was probably in 2017 um, that he decided he wanted to get well. And it was a struggle for him. He um, went to treatment. He had great months, you know, even uh, nine up to nine months. And then he would have a reoccurrence of use and he would go back in treatment. And then we'd have another great six months or nine months. Um, and the last time he relapsed um we had two really great years and so during that time we had you know our family had really been able to sort of interact with him and heal and um i think we did not carry resentments and we were really careful not to blame our son for his addiction you know and the other thing we didn't do is we didn't push jesus on him we knew that you know he had some uh, some, you know, just biases towards the religion. Um, but he definitely embraced God. He worked the 12 step program. Um, I know that he was saved. I just think that he felt a lot of shame because of his addiction. Um, so we just loved him like Jesus. And we just, you know, we, we just let go of resentments. We let go of outcomes. And, and even when he had relapses, we were like, okay. You know, it's just a blip. What do you want to do? And so he would reactivate recovery. And in April, he had a very bad relapse. And just like with, you know, what they say, every relapse was a little worse. Um, and he had ended up using heroin and fentanyl. Um, but in April, he wanted to go to a wilderness program. And so he went to this wilderness program and we did the family program and we sat knees to knees with him. And it was the most healing thing you can imagine. You know, what sharing, we, we couldn't even think of resentments, but, you know, just sharing our regrets, asking for forgiveness, um, talking about what we respected about each other, 
you know, what we, we had this part of it, which was requests, which were, you know, sort of the dreams for the future. And then he went into a sober home and he was doing really well. Like he was, he had a job, he was climbing, he had an amazing girlfriend that he's had for two and a half years. She was very supportive. Um, in fact, we've looked back at messages and there was no shaming, no blaming, nothing. But unfortunately, the tentacles of opioid addiction go very, very, very deep. And he had been on Vivitrol, which is a medication that prevents um, overdose. And he had stopped taking it. We're not sure when or why. Um, but on, um, on October 22nd, Um, well, it's actually on October 21st, he had a really good friend who was living in the sober house who, who relapsed and Jake loved this boy, Danny. Um, and he went after Danny. And one of the, one of the things that has given us so much assurance through this is that in Jake's big book, multiple times, he wrote in there, faith without works is dead. And he underlined it, faith without works is dead. And and I think that he wanted to help Danny. Um, he knew Danny was a very ill person and felt like, you know, Dick felt like he was Danny's only friend. Um, so he left the safety of the sober home and the safety of his program to do what I believe Jesus would have done. And that was to help Danny. But in that process, you know, Danny, he had bought a lot of drugs and Jake, it was too much temptation for Jake. And um, on Friday night, they were in Danny's apartment and, um, and, uh, Danny overdosed. So Jake saved his life from, with naloxone. And they took Danny to the hospital. They lined up a program for Danny. In the meantime, Jake had used. So they were kind of talking that night, him and Maddie, about what Jake's plan was going to be to reactivate his recovery and to get, you know, back on track. And um, that night, after he went back home, Jake used. And Maddie found him dead the next morning. Um, yeah, so, you know, we, I, I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's so hard. It's, it's so painful. And I know others who have gone through it and it's, it's such a terrible loss. And, um, I'm, have prayed for you. Um, ever since I heard about it and um, continue to. Um, why don't you wrap up our time just kind of sharing um, what God has been to you in this these couple of months? Well, you know, the, um, how we've gotten through this, and, and, you know, people ask us, we spoke at the funeral um, how do we get, how do you get through something like that? And, you know, of course, the foundation of all of it is our faith and the promises of God. And, you know, um, 
part of our comfort comes from knowing that we had loved Jake well. And I can look through every text message for the last five years, and there was never an accusation. There was never shame. There was never blame. There wasn't anything ever about us and what was important to us. It was always about Jake and what he wanted for his life and and trying to support what he wanted. And so, you know, asking that question, like, if he died, would we have regrets? And we can truly say no, um, that we don't. I mean, little ones, right? Like, little ones. Um, sometimes it feels like the universe conspired and everything fell into place for Jake to die. And, you know, we don't know why, right? Because... People die 100%. You guys are going to suffer a loss in your life at some point. And you're going to wonder, like, why didn't God stop it, right? Because I don't believe God causes death. God wanted us to live. And um, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Um, And and John 10.10 says, I came, Jesus came, for us to have life in all of its fullness. And so thinking in terms of what, um, sometimes I would say addiction stole our son, but we weren't going to give it the two for one special. And um, we're determined that, well, this is hard and we're filled with grief. And every day I, you know, go through a box of clinics that God's intention is for us to live, to thrive, Um we will not ever get over Jake's death, but we will learn to live with Jake's death. And we will continue our ministries in honor of our son and his life. And so, you know, I think part of it is just that determination that we're not going to let the enemy steal what God intended for us. And that is um, joy and and peace and love and and you know knowing god's character i think has really been the primary thing that has helped us through this that god's intention is always good and that jake truly is in a much better place right now than we are you know we're sad and we're suffering and we're you know, grieving deeply, but, um, Jake is climbing mountains, you know, he's, he's with Jesus. And, um, I know that can feel trite, but like for but us, it's it, true. Yeah, it is the truth, right? It is. It's the truth. Mm-hmm. I think I'd like to pray for you right now. Thank you. Uh, And I would invite listeners to just join in and pray for Pam and anyone else you know who's walking through a very dark time. So, Father, I lift up my sister and her husband and the the children and even Jake's girlfriend, people who are struggling at this loss because there's this big emptiness inside them now. and, and one they love is no longer tangible for them to, to show that love and to receive it. 
And I pray that you would continue to provide comfort and bring healing. Um, You've promised that that you can do that. You're the healer. And I I thank you for Pam's perspective that, that Jake is with Jesus and he's in a great place. Um, and he's now no longer struggling with his addiction. Ten years is a long time. And, Father, I just pray for the family to be at peace, to allow the grief, uh, to recognize that's part of what happens when you lose is that you grieve and to not feel pressured to get over it. Uh, But I also thank you for the willingness to share with the rest of us uh, this hard journey. Um, And I just keep asking that you would uh, strengthen them uh, with your spirit and wrap your loving arms around them and give them peace within because you are the God of peace. And, And I do pray that you would also keep letting them touch other lives um, as they've seen you be so faithful to them in this hard journey. So thank you, Father. I pray just ultimate, awesome, wonderful blessing, even as they go through a, a time of grieving and experiencing their loss. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, two things. One, I really would like, it'd probably be a month or two, uh, to talk with you again and learn a lot more about what you do in your ministry and how that could be helpful to our listeners. And second, um, we're going to give away uh, three of your books to listeners. If you go to the the show notes, you'll see her book and her resources listed. But you see mine, and there's one that has my website. And if you click on that, there is on my website a place that says contact. <laughs> and you can contact me and say, I would love to be in the drawing for one of Pam's books. So, um Before we sign off, I wanted to tell you that the next week, I am following up this wonderful conversation with a very personal one. My guest next week in celebration of my 50th episode of When You Love a Prodigal podcast will be my son, Josh. And uh, he's the one responsible for my wilderness journey um, that... I think has benefited a lot of people. And I, he's been, it's been a while (laughs) before he came to a place to say, yes, I would like to talk about it. So I'm looking forward to that. And I, I hope my listeners will not only come and listen, but tell others as well, because Josh has a, a hard but wonderful story. So I'll see you then, Um, and don't forget, did you write down something you heard Pam say uh, that will encourage you and help you as you go forward in your journey? And uh, choose at least one of those that you're going to seek to apply. So thank you, Lord, 
for this time. I'm grateful for Pam and look forward to talking to her again and look forward to being with you who are listening next week as we talk to Josh. God bless you.